Welcome to Daring Daring 2, a podcast that finds out how CEOs and entrepreneurs navigate today's business world, the conventions they're breaking, the challenges they've faced, and the decisions that they've made, and lastly, just what makes them different. So welcome to Daring 2. And while you're at home, working from home during this coronavirus, and you want to listen to something that isn't corona-related, I'm delighted for this week's podcast to have Peter Riding on uh, as my guest. And he has some very interesting conversations, tips, advice to share. Peter, you are a a, a fascinating character. I tend to have fascinating characters on my um, show. And you are by far and away one of the most interesting. Started a career in engineering and has kind of like, kind of gone into my kind of field, right? The people field of all. I'm like, wow, how did that happen? Rescued 12 companies from bankruptcy in your career, generating over a billion dollars of shareholder value. You are acclaimed around the world. I am in awe. So let me start off by saying that I am in awe. Um, and it's a pleasure to meet you virtually. Um, so let's kick off because there's lots of questions that I've got. Tell me about your career. How did you go from being, you know, studying engineering, working for an engineering company, and then becoming this serial entrepreneur that's a kind of like a turnaround expert. That's kind of an interesting career history. Yes, you're right, Rita. It, it, it is unusual. And thank you again for having me on the program. Very kind words you, you said about me. Um, I was always fascinated in understanding how things work. I used to take cars apart, engines apart. In those days, you could. You didn't need uh, all the electronics nowadays. And I've always wanted to make things better, cars faster, motorbikes faster. And so I became an engineer. And I worked for some of the largest companies in the world initially. I worked for Exxon, SO, we call it in the UK, the biggest company in the world at the time. I worked for 3i, at the time the biggest venture capital company in the world. I worked for Mars, one of the leading confectionery companies in the world. And I then had a crazy career move into the music industry with EMI, where on my very first meeting, these guys turned up in cut-down denim shirts They were smoking pot in the boardroom. And what I I was just blown away because I didn't think this was the way business worked. It certainly would have been different to your your days at, um, I would say, the energy companies and the traditional hierarchical companies that existed then. Suddenly what I was told is these were some of the best A&R guys in the world. They had just signed up Blur, who at the time was one of the massive up-and-coming groups in the UK. And these were the best guys in the world at what they did. And it forced me to take a step back because I'd arrogantly thought that, you know, the way you're successful in business is to have a plan, have an agenda. Everyone turns up on time. You agree actions and you go off and do stuff. And these guys did not, did not fit into that category, but they were still the best in the world. And where that led me to go was I just reflected on what is the common link between all these successful companies in totally different industries. And the only common feature was people. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, I had to go within and do a bit of humility and say what I thought was the way to be successful in business is only one option. And I actually went away on a retreat in the middle of the New Forest, a beautiful part of the country in, in England. Indeed, yeah. And um, in the, when I was away, over four days, I discovered my identity. And that's a very deep, almost spiritual sense. And for me, I discovered I was Pathfinder. 
So uh, let's words. talk no, about no, no. that. Let, let's, I'm going to, I'm going to like interrupt you there because there's probably yeah. listeners right now going like, yeah, come on. You spent four days like in the new forest, beautiful like scenery and you found yourself. Like, how did you find yourself? And, and that's going to be really interesting because you have worked with some really, you know, high caliber CEOs, very well known, respected people. So to hear someone like you say, I spent four days finding myself. How do you address the skeptics on the, the listeners that sure. might be saying, well, like, I, really? I, Come on. I had, a, I, would, I had a coach, a professional coach at the time. He recommended me to his coach, who was a deep um, clinical psychologist, a trained coach and a mentor and an ex-business person. And that person was incredible. And they led us. There were about um, – there were 12 of us, actually – went through this process of four days. We actually spent very little time in the new forest itself, deeply going within and, exp- and, and asking us deep questions, which I still ask. So, so I coach chief executives nowadays. And one of the questions I ask them is what they, uh, they asked me at the time. Who do you want to be and who must you stop being so that you can become the person you want to be? Now, you can take that sort of question at any That's level you want. Question. I find it's a bit like peeling back an onion. Yep. You have, you come up with an answer and then you think about it. You think, well, actually, no, I need to go deeper than that. And I went very deep. You know, I went into this place during the four days where I was visualizing in my mind what might seem a bit weird, but visualizing being in a clearing in the middle of the night with a, with a fire burning in the clearing. And as you looked at the edge of the trees in the woods around this clearing, you could gradually see figures emerge. And because of the setup that's done, you realize that you're talking to your unconscious mind. And all the figures in the forest, which were slowly emerging, were people I either knew or I knew of. So one of the things I learned in this exercise was that there are four types of people who can coach you and mentor for free. No cost whatsoever. They're available 24-7. And I still use these people nowadays. One type of person is people that you know. So this could be an uncle, a teacher, an ex-boss, people who you know, you respect, they've helped you. And any time you can, in your mind, imagine they're in front of you and have a conversation with them. There are also people who are dead. There are people who you used to know, but... They are no longer alive. And these could be figures in um, in the outside world. So it could be like Nelson Mandela. Just because you've never met Nelson Mandela doesn't mean that you can't research them, understand their lives in a bit more detail. And if at some point you think, I really should be more compassionate or more forgiving, imagine having a discussion with Nelson Mandela. Now, if you want to be tenacious and tough, imagine you're getting advice from Winston Churchill. Um, For me, uh, one of the people who was boldest that I'm aware of is Alexander the Great. At the age of 30 years old, he'd created the biggest empire the world had ever seen. So I've read a lot about Alexander the Great. And when I'm wanting to be bold or forthright or courageous, I imagine Alexander the Great's in front of me. And I say to him, you know, you know everything that's in my mind. You know, you're in my mind. So Mm -hmm. we've got one in the same brain here. But if you role play and you say, well, Alexander the Great, what would you do in this situation? Or what would you, Nelson Mandela, do in this situation? You will get a completely different response 
depending on who you're imagining is sitting in the chair opposite, because <clears throat> your mind understands the difference between compassion and being bold. And so all of these people on the edge of the clearing that I gradually called in and I spoke to, and this was under very carefully controlled um, situations with clinical psychologists there to make sure that things couldn't go wrong. <clears throat> and overall, as I had all of these discussions, the common link that emerged between me talking to my grandfather, who I'd been very close to, but was dead, me talking to a teacher who was still alive, me talking to Alexander the Great, <clears throat> what emerged was two things. I was very good at helping paint pictures of the, into the future for other people. So when I was doing turnaround work, for example, I could go to a board of directors and help them paint a better picture into the future of their business, where it's alive and it's thriving. <clears throat> I do free coaching work for disadvantaged kids. Often they've been abused by parents. They've been maybe ex-drug addicts. And I work with them and I help them think through what is, their, what is the life that they want in the future different to now? And I would help people visualize a better future and I would help them get there. And the words that suddenly emerged, like a, I, I mean, I cried when it happened with me. It's very, very mm -hmm. emotional. And I do this with other chief executives now. I take others through the same process I went through and they often cry. And suddenly the two words that came to my mind are pathfinder. And what that meant for me is that I help people imagine the future that they want. I help them find their path to that future. And then I help them along the path in whatever way works for them. If there's a business in crisis, I can grab hold of it as a chief executive and pull it into the future, rescuing it from failure. Um, and I put it screaming and kicking if needs be, but I will mm -hmm. get them there. If there's a CEO who just wants a little bit of help, maybe they're under stress at the moment because of coronavirus. They're having rounds with their partner at home. They're worried about having to make many people unemployed. Then I can help them with a lighter touch and a coach as a coach. I can help as an executive chairman or a non-exec director, a strategic advisor. Um, or, you know, with people in my family, I can just be there as a father or as a husband. Uh, but what I do consistently is I, I help people paint a picture of the future they want, and I help them find their path to it, and I help them along that path to whatever extent I want. And what's really critical for me is that means I can live my life on purpose with the double meaning. Everything I do, I do it purposefully because I'm not just being Peter trying to drive a business board. I am living my purpose and my identity of pathfinder. But I am also, um, I'm living my life purposefully. I'm actually doing something which is meaningful for me, which is helping other people. Which well, partly touched... is where Vic, your virtual interactive coach comes as well. Yeah, and, and we're going to talk about virtual, uh, Vic, the virtual um, coach, in just one second, because it, and it actually will, I think, come out as you talk about, um, I'll address this question that I'm going to ask you. The concept of purpose, of companies having a bigger purpose than just either making profit or um, contributing to whatever they do, maybe it's a non-profit organisation, but beyond their kind of business mission, I am seeing an, um, 
and advising companies today that it needs to be more than rhetoric today when you talk about what your purpose is. And you've been very clear to say, actually, my purpose has a, has a double P to it. Um, and I guess my question to you is, how important do you think that is to companies today? But, you know, we are in the, we are in the throes of a, a coronavirus. And my own personal opinion of this is that we will see the companies that emerge the strongest from this for those that are true to their higher purpose uh, when this is all over. But how, you know, what's your view on that? And particularly tell us a little bit about how you're applying that with, with, the, with, with Vic. I love the name Vic because that's my brother's shorthand name and we are kind of close <laughs> on most times, although we fight a lot too. Um, so it has like, it has, it, obviously it has a, you know, a res, it resonates with me very well. But tell us a little bit about that because it seems like something that would actually be really important at this time where people are suddenly finding themselves remote working um, it seems to build on your purpose, but can you combine those two things together and talk a little bit about that? Like, what was the what was your double P, if you like, around Vic, um, the, the virtual coach and virtual interactive coach? And what do you think? How what do you think about how companies should be thinking about their higher purpose or double purpose, if you like? As, sure, as, as we uh, I, I don't think an organisation has to have a higher purpose. However, if you look at millennials, the two things they want and the two reasons, the most common reasons they leave their current employer is one, they are not being developed. They don't feel they are growing as a person. They're not gaining skills that they want to gain. That's one reason. The other reason is that when they talk to their friends about the company they work for, they sort of describe it mechanically with no purpose. Whereas if you can convey a higher purpose, you don't have to, but it adds a lot to a business. And net, it I believe it adds to productivity and to profit. However, I would say there is a difference between purpose and purposefulness. So a purpose, you could say, our purpose is to make profit and return for the shareholders. That's perfectly legitimate. Um, It's not very exciting. not very emotional, but you can say you have a purpose. However, purposefulness, I think, is where you are contributing to society. You are doing good. And that, I think, is becoming a very, very hot topic. And millennials want to work for chief executives and for companies that are purposeful. Totally agree with you. Sorry, Rita. Yes, I totally agree with you, right? And I think, like, you have called that out with your well, your purposeful goal, which is like, you know, a bit the 20 million people across 20 countries is, I think, very purposeful to sort of impact the, the learning and the capabilities of that many people um, and not just like in a particular place, but around the world. That to me seems very purposeful. And, and you start to see those companies that are thinking like in ways like you are thinking and your company's thinking as having a much wider impact on a much more global scale of solving some of the biggest problems that the world faces today, right? Yes, it's interesting. One of the classic stories that I love is that when President Nixon went to Cape Canaveral in 1968, a year before the Apollo rocket took off, um, and he supposedly came across a janitor and said, tell me, what do you do? And the janitor said, I'm part of the team helping to get a man to the moon and safely home again by the end of the decade. In other words, the mission statement, the speech that JFK gave mm-hmm. at the beginning of the decade had been communicated so effectively, no offence to janitors, but right down to the janitor level, 
who got it. And I believe that means that person will work that little bit harder. If he saw a bit of chewing gum in a place where it shouldn't be, instead of saying, it's not, it's not worth it, I'm just going to go home, he would, he would make sure that that bit of chewing gum was removed. And also, I think, if you were to meet him at the weekend and say, by the way, what do you do? He wouldn't say a bit embarrassed, oh, I'm, 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 a, you know, I'm a janitor and so on. He would say, I'm part of the team and so on and so forth. So when certainly all the employees who are part of Vic um, they're very proud to be part of Vic. A because we're doing good stuff and we do all sorts of stuff, which you know we probably don't have time to cover now. However, they are proud of the fact that they are part of the team, helping 20 million people across 20 countries achieve and celebrate more success with less stress. Now, part of that is well, what does success mean? That's a great discussion to have with CEOs, by the way. People have very different views what success means. Some people say it's being healthy. Some people say, I want a, a you know, Ferrari and a villa and you know, all sorts of other things. Some people say they want both, right? <laughs> no, what you want. But for us, celebrate, interesting, out of the whole mission statement, celebrate is the key word. That is our corporate core value. Why, why so, was that? Why did it become a corporate core value for you, do you think? Okay, because it, one, of, one of the businesses that we're in is learning helping people learn online and coaching people online through artificial intelligence, machine learning. That takes the cost out of a normal human coach. However, the, you know, no one wants to learn. No one, learning is like hard work. It's focus, it's doing stuff, it might be taking exams. No one wants that. What you want is success. That's what you want. And you might realise you have to learn to be successful. But what, and, and a great measure of success is celebrate because if someone is genuinely celebrating, they've almost certainly achieved something. They've achieved success and they probably had to work hard. They probably had to learn to get there. But learning is a method. It's a means. It's not the ends. Celebration is the key performance indicator, I believe, of learning and achievement. So how do you do and that what? with with Vic? I mean, how does that actually play out? You said, you know, there's lots of things that you do as a company and you're right, we probably don't have time to go into all of them. But if you were to like sort of pick one or two that really are having that kind of impact on, on people's ability to be able to celebrate, to, to grow their capabilities, to learn yeah, your skills, what, so, so how do you just, do that? So, so Vic, your virtual interactive coach, um, it, so it's called, as you mentioned before, it's called Vic for several reasons, V-I-C. First of all, to make it seem like a friendly person. We're trying to personify coaching. We call it the coach in your pocket 24-7. It's as if you've got a, a, a highly trained, experienced coach who is also an expert in over 600 different topics, you know, how to coach, how to lead, how to sell, how to deal with conflict, how to build rapport with people. So all that is within the system. And VIC stands for Virtual Interactive Coach. However, it also stands for the choice we all make in the morning as to are we going to have a positive mindset all about if it's to be, it's up to me taking personal responsibility and also not blaming them, whoever they are, or waiting to be empowered instead of doing the right thing, not the easy thing. Now, that mindset, the way I, I tell the story is, imagine you get up in the morning, you stub your toe on the bed, corner of the bed and you, you growl and, you, and you, you, know, you, you stare at the cat and the cat runs away. <laughs> um, you get in your car and you, you, you don't let other people, other cars out in front of you, you're, you're walking through a door and there's someone close behind you and you don't bother to stop 
and keep the door open. And don't be surprised if you do that. When you turn up a reception and the receptionist doesn't give you a very good look and you have a shit day because you chose, you might not have consciously chosen to be angry, but you didn't choose to be happy. Whereas if when you stub your toe, you think, damn, that hurt. I'm sure tomorrow I'm going to make sure I walk further around the bed. And you choose to stroke the cat. And you do let a few drivers out. You do hold the door open for someone, even though they're five seconds away. And all of a sudden, if you're nice to the world, the world is nice to you and you have a better day. So a lot of within Vic is telling people about the choices they are already making day in, day out. They might not realise they are. And I, and I do think that there are many laws of life. It's a bit like gravity. You might say, I don't believe in gravity. It doesn't matter. If you trip over, you're going to fall down on the floor because gravity exists. Many of the, the, the rules of life, the habits of success are truths. And if you are dishonorable and you do dishonorable things, people won't trust you and you will not be as successful as if you did honourable things and people did trust you. So, you know, within Vic, we have a lot of what we call the deep insights to life around what makes people successful. We have a lot of practical things like, do you prioritise? Do you live the 80-20 rule? Because what most people do, what most businesses do, and this might be specific interest to your listeners now, Rita, is... What, what the 80-20 what the rule says is that 20% of the things we do delivers 80% of the results yep. and 80% of what we do delivers 20%. So what do we as humans do? Sure enough, we as humans and as businesses, we spend 20% of our time on the 20% of things that make 80% of the difference, which means we're spending 80% of our time on the 80% of things that makes not all difference. Now, that's just stupid, and yet well, that's what we do. And one of the things I do when I'm coaching a CEO or I take over a business, is I identify the 20% of things that are the important 20% of things that will make 80% of the difference going forward. And that's probably different to the 20% of things that got you here. Oh, look, and the producer and I are looking at each other. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Well, yeah, then, then I find a way of focusing 80% of my time, my energy, my passion, the resources of the company, the employees, the, the, the machinery, the systems, all of the, 80% of the resources on the 20% of things, that gives you a four times multiplier straight off the bat. And so the first thing I do when I start working with a CEO or taking over a company as a turnaround is to identify what are those 20% of things. Sorry, Rita, back I was to just saying the producer and I were looking at each other as you were talking about that, the 80% of the time that we spend on like doing stuff that like's a waste of time and like we could like looking at each other going like, do you do that? Yeah, I think I might do that. Do you do that? Yeah, I think I might do that too. But so what's uh, interesting as well, this isn't just at a job level. Most of us spend 20% of our time doing the 20% of things that give us 80% of our happiness. We spend 80% of our time doing the 80% of things that don't make us happy. So all you have to do is work out what makes you happy and find a way of spending more time, more bandwidth, more focus on those things. And when you do that, what you normally discover is that all the material things we chase, we tend to end up chasing after in life are inconsequential versus love and friendship and health and happiness. 
And as the Dalai Lama said, in his view, success equals happiness. Yeah, he wrote he a good says, book about you know, that. That's basically, he's probably done more thinking about this than most of us. He says success equals happiness. Yep. So unless you're spending 80% of your time doing things that make you happy, I'm so lucky. I love doing the job I do. I live my life on purpose virtually every day. Most of every day, I'm living my life on purpose because I know my purpose is Pathfinder and I pathfind most of my time. And it also gives me a true north by which when I get a tough situation and I think, hmm, I'm in a dilemma here, all I have to do is say, okay, I'm Pathfinder. What is the best way of me living my life on purpose in this situation? And that gives me the answer. So, you know, this is really powerful stuff in your home life and in your career and in your business. This is really powerful stuff. As you were saying, you know, it's all about people, but you've got to recognize I am people, you are people. People isn't just them. You have to include yourself. And most people, especially CEOs in my experience, go through life and their careers. They treat themselves like an enemy. They should. We should all treat ourselves like our own best friend. You know, we criticize ourselves. We, we tell us that we failed something and we tell ourselves thing, things day in, day out. We would never dream of telling a real best friend. Yeah. You know, we give much more positive spin. And that's something else about, you know, being a CEO. You have to look after yourself and you have to occasionally just sit back, reflect, take stock and say, am I treating myself like my own best friend? And if you're not, do something about it. So let's talk about CEOs for a minute and, 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 you ha- you have coined and you've used the word a lot on on the podcast, which I think is really powerful. You use the word "do" a lot, and you coined something called "do it." D o i t. I don't know if you say it, you 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 say it as "do it" or it's "d o i t." Um, but I've heard you use the word "do" a lot in the podcast, which is a very active about actually taking some kind of action. As you think about seek, so I obviously share what that is with. Um, the listeners. And then can you put, give some tips to CEOs as to how they can apply that in this very situation that we are finding ourselves into today? An unprecedented situation, yes, um, but the reality is we're probably going to see lots more kinds of things like this happen. Um, not necessarily epidemics, but I think, you know, unforeseen things. Is that a concept that they can apply today, do you think? Tell us a bit more <coughs> yes, about it. Yes, it is. It. So you mentioned several things there I'd just like to touch upon. I'll come back to do it. Do It is the most powerful management insight I've come across in my entire career, incidentally. Um, Just going back to the, you know, what should CEOs do? Um, Being a leader is very different to being a manager. Being a leader is typically about doing the right thing instead of doing the thing right. It's about inspiring and getting other people to be the very best they can be and that doesn't mean that um, you have to be focusing upon you all the time. I see my role. I draw my organizational diagram upside down. I'm at the very bottom, and I'm there to serve everyone in the organization. I want them to look forward to coming into work, being the very best person that they can be. And my job is to create the environment and the, and the atmosphere to make sure the right measures are in place, to make sure that they absolutely recommend my company as a brilliant place to work. However, to do that, 
Something which is counterintuitive to many CEOs is which box in the urgent and important mm-hmm. matrix should you be in? So I think we're all aware of the urgent, important matrix where you have... Probably worth sharing stuff. it because I'm not, I'm not sure that all of the listeners will understand those that four-box... Oh, so, yeah, sure. Yeah, so imagine there's a, there's a four-box grid and up the side is urgency, low to high, and along the bottom is importance, low to high. And the question is, where should leaders operate? So one of the boxes that you might think is where leaders should operate is called urgent and important. In my mind, that is not where leaders go. That is not where they add value. Everyone jumps into the urgent and important. You know, a customer's phoned up and they say, we're not going to pay the bill and we're going to go to a competitor. And everyone responds to that sort of thing. There's a crisis with a a member of your team. They've had a personal tragedy or a big cock-up's happened. There's an issue in the factory and you've got to go down and fix it. That's why CEOs employ good people to deal with those issues. Leaders certainly shouldn't operate in the low urgency and low importance box because no one should really be operating there. Sometimes there's some stuff that needs to happen. Um, but broadly speaking, that, that is the 80% of activity that delivers sod all. Another box is where it is um, urgent and uh, not important. So this is where after people have, have rushed into the urgent and important box, and they've done all that stuff, there's then a a shadow of other work, which isn't as urgent because the urgency has been dealt with. Um, It isn't really that important. However, it tends to be urgent and not important work. And people still go there like moths to a flame because you can stamp on some fires, you can feel you're really busy, even if you're not really being productive. So that's not a place for leaders to go. Where leaders should operate is where it's important and not urgent. That's what's called the boring box. It's things like auditing and succession planning. It's about culture definition and things which most people find boring and therefore they don't go there. The danger is if no one does it, if no one operates in that box, it slides to the left into the urgent and important. Then it's a crisis and you have to do the same things, but in a rush and you don't do it as well. So right now, all of the CEOs that I'm advising, we are now, we've accepted that plan A is in shreds and that's not going to happen for this year. We need plan B. And so we are now all working on what does plan B look like after the coronavirus? And that's important to start working on now, not just the planning, because part of what we have to do is to project ourselves forward maybe to the end of the year in nine months' time, hopefully when a lot of corona has gone. And we have to think when employees are reflecting, how has my leadership team, how has my company looked after me and my fellow colleagues, my family? What actions did they take? What decisions did they make? How good were they at communicating? Because in nine months' time, comes to the end of the year, people think, what am I going to do in the next year? And that's when they think, am I going to stay Or am I going to go? And if you've shat upon your employees and you haven't communicated and you are seen as doing selfish things, not the right things, you haven't been a good leader, they will probably move to a competitor. They'll contact your other employees and say, why didn't you come here? This is a much better bunch of guys. However, if right now 
just before you press the button on any action or any decision you're about to take, just before you do that, you ask yourself the question, if our employees were watching us right now, if our customers, if our suppliers, if our shareholders were watching and listening in on this meeting right now, would they be impressed? In nine months' time, when all of those stakeholders are going to be assessing our organisation, do we want to keep doing business with them? Do we want to invest more or less money? Do we want to stay an employee? They're going to be reflecting back upon how you as a leader, especially as a CEO, have been acting and communicating. So make sure, in my mind, you know, they're human beings, not human doings, your employees. You need to show empathy, caring, compassion. Imagine that they are your children, your relatives, your parents. And, you know, as, as Gandhi said, Gandhi said, it's not good enough to stand in someone else's shoes to understand how they feel. That isn't good enough. You have to put their shoes on and walk for a mile in their shoes so that you feel what they're feeling. And if you feel the fear, the scared, the the worry, the anxiety, you will make more humane, I believe, better decisions than if you simply operate at an intellectual level. Oh, well, you you know, you are playing a song that plays to my heart with all of the things that you've just said there, not only because you talked about Gandhi and coming from an Indian background, he has, um, you know, he plays heavily in my sort of uh, background of growing up, um, of, of being taught to think some values to, um, to try and live up to. But I do, I mean, it is music to my ears to hear you that who's also working with like, you know, senior execs, CEOs around the world and coaching them on this kind of um, aspect. Because interestingly enough, I do think that one of the things, the opportunities right now is for companies, uh, and actually we're going out with a a survey to people to say like, what have you learned so far about how your companies have been reacting to this crisis? Because as you say, it's not about the now, it's about the future as well. And that this is a real opportunity for companies to not only shape how they um, are today, but what that looks like tomorrow. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean the same as it did yesterday or today, but really future looking. So like music to my head, some really good tips. So I would urge listeners to rewind, particularly this little piece here, and listen to some of the things that you said about the questions that they should be asking and, and the mindset that CEOs should have as they think about some of the decisions that they are making um, to keep their businesses going, not just now, but in the future and make them sustainable and retain the talent that they need to help those businesses to grow in the future. Because you're right, I think we'll see the winners and the losers from this, um, not just through how um, people come through coronavirus, that's that's for sure. Um, PC, your background is just like so wide and so interesting. Like, Like, I mean, there's so many avenues past that I could go down with you but I've got to also touch on and it does it's certainly reflected in in the work that you're doing now around learning but you took the opportunity to take on to take on a company which you know for those of us that that are old enough to remember it I I like to say seasoned enough when I think about myself like that Um, but I do remember the good old John Cleese video days that I used to use um, when I was a HR practitioner if you like a sort of like young HR um, leader trying to give people sort of workshops and training sessions on different types of capabilities and John Cleese and who is a, you know a renowned worldwide sort of um, actor thought professional you name it 
He's done so many different things. I mean, you actually took the company Video Arts, right, and turned it around. I mean, got some massive accolades from him. Tell, tell us about that because that's clearly that that sort of it, entree into learning has come through leading some large learning organizations. And, and that business has fundamentally transformed over the, the last, I don't know, 10, 20 years. I mean, it's so different to what it what it was in those early days. So I've, I've got to ask you about it, not just about John Cleese, obviously, I'm keen to know about him, but just like the whole, how you've applied what you've learned about those learning businesses and how you are um, putting that applicability to the business that you run today. Sure. Well, at the time, Video Art was the biggest uh, training resources company in the world. It had millions of customers all over the world. There was nothing like it. Um, unfortunately, John had received some bad advice and he invested in e-learning. Um, and he was also advised by an accountant to take to stop paying high salaries to the celebrities, which was one of the appeals of his videos. So very, very, you know, top-notch celebrities in his videos. And he followed the advice and he stopped um, paying celebrities for actors you've never heard of. And he put it into some, he invested in e-learning. And it was, e-learning is a very different art and science to making uh, funny stories. The business got into difficulty. And so I came in, I was always passionate about continuous learning anyway. By that stage, I discovered I was pathfinder. um, And therefore, I knew I could find the path forward for, um, for John and Video Art, which I did. And as you mentioned, I won the National Turnaround of the Year Award that year for, um, for rescuing the business. I was very lucky. I learned an enormous amount from John. Um, one of them is the power of telling stories. You know, since cavemen, Lascaux Caves, um, humans love stories. There's an emotional element that if you can, if you can add emotional interest, people re- will remember what they have heard. The reason is... But in caveman days, if Ugg the caveman suddenly had a saber-toothed tiger or an exploding volcano in front of him, he needed to run. And so our brain has evolved that when there is a lot of emotion going on with adrenaline and its big daddy called cortisol, any learning that takes place in that situation is transferred to your long-term memory so that next time Ugg sees a caveman, he runs straight away instead of thinking about it. So what that means is if you can tell an emotional story, you remember it. That's why everyone remembers where they were when they heard Princess Diana died, mm-hmm. because that kicked off neurotransmitters in your mind and it, it seals the memory into your head. So I got um, married on that day, so I don't think I'm forgetting that, Dave, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, just in terms of the power of telling stories within the VIP system, we have hundreds, actually with thousands of videos in there, five-minute video. Everything is in five-minute bits, ultimately. And we have a lot of stories. Some of them are called e-stories, true stories. Some are fascinating fables, which are we call them interesting stories to challenge your assumptions and make you think. Perhaps I could just give you a very, very short version of a story here. Yeah, it's I'd love that. Flowers, and it works, and then the story is as follows. A man goes into a florist to buy some... Um, to buy some flowers for his mother who lives 200 miles away. Um, as he goes in to buy them, um, sorry, as he comes out, so he, he, get, he goes in and does the transaction, he walks out. He sees a young girl, maybe 12 years old, on the step in front of the florist crying. And he says, hello, can I help you in any way? And she says, I want to buy three roses for my mother, but I've only got a pound and that's not enough. So he goes in, gives the shopkeeper three pounds, 
She takes the roses and goes out of the shop. He watches her, crosses the road, goes into a graveyard and places it on a, <clears throat> on a, gra- on a grave. As he does so, he thinks, you know what? I'm going to cancel this order of flowers for my mother. I'm going to drive up and I'm going to give them to her myself. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if that story... Yeah, it resonates. Yeah, it certainly yeah, resonates, right? But that, that yeah. is a very, very short story, but it's got emotion. Yeah. Several levels of emotion. I guarantee you, if you found that emotional, you will remember the story. I also anticipate you will want to tell someone else that same story. Yeah. So as far as we are concerned, as a business wanting to help people around the 20 million people around the world celebrate, if we can tell stories like that in a very short period of time and we can make an emotional connection, we can help achieve our goal of 20 million people sooner because people, you know, the theory is we can close down our marketing department because our customers and our members and other people will, will be spreading the word for us. And so one of the things I learned from John is the power of emotions and what he called a hook. So another example of a hook is, again, again this will only, literally, this will only take about 40 seconds. Oh, I think whole. it's lovely to share it with the, the listeners because they are things but, that they can use and they will remember. So please do, please really, do yeah, share so, them. So th- this is another example. This isn't what we call a fascinating fable. This is, um, th- this is a different type. We have seven different types of videos within the system. This is different. So um, here goes. Um, we all know the phrase, you can take a horse to water, you can't make it drink. Have you heard of that one, Rita? I have, many, yes. Okay. That, that is what John called the hook. Okay, you've heard it before. So when I say it, it's familiar. So now I've hooked you because you're wondering, well, I know it. Where's Peter going to take it? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you know the phrase, you can take a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. We all know it. We assume it's true. However, what if you put salt in the horse's oats, it would make it thirsty, wouldn't it? Yeah. And therefore it, it would, would want go. To drink. <laughs> Instead of forcing it to drink. So <clears throat> the question is, in your life right now, Rita, in the in the in the minds and in the lives of your listeners, your CEOs, what is the issue? What is the right salt to put in the right horse's oats at the right time? So if you want a child to do homework. If you want an employee to start adopting a new computer system, if you want someone to go out with you romantically, if you want your partner to drive so that you can drink, whatever you want, all you have to do is work out what is the right salt to put in the right oats at the right time. Now, I don't know how long that took, maybe a minute, probably not much more than a minute. But because I put a hook in there, Again, I would like to think you and your listeners will remember that story. I'm already and writing down the 10 things that I'm going to do that I would need to, to get done. So don't worry. Like, this is multitasking at its best. Yes. It's what John used to call gossip ability. And everything we put into the VIX system, we build in gossip ability so that it's interesting, it's intriguing. But not only that, you feel that you have had, in some sense, almost not quite a revelation, but you think, wow, yes, I haven't thought about it like that before. And because we're all human beings, not human doings, and we're all about relationships and reciprocal relationships, people want to share these things. And so again, 
what brings me joy is because I am Pathfinder and I want to help people find a better future, by me sharing that with you and you very kindly asking me onto your podcast and sharing with the CEOs, I am living my life on purpose of giving away some hints and tips because I think other people can now use these tips to achieve and celebrate more success with less stress. So that makes me feel good by being on your podcast. Oh, you know, so, I mean, you have given some amazing tips and advice and just just sharing the stories about your own personal journey, I think is going to resonate so well with so many people. It's, you know, I learn something every time I have a guest and on my podcast and I go away and I try to take at least one or two nuggets and apply them myself. So it, it always shows me that you never, you are never done learning um, and there is always so much more to learn from others. So for that, I am extremely grateful. I asked everyone and we haven't really got time, but I have to mention it, you know, written seven books, including one that is, has been acclaimed that says, um, and I'm in the States right now. So obviously Houston, we may have a problem. I understand is a doc, sort of a documentary come book drama that was actually televised. So, um, I'm sure less listeners can get hold of that. It sounds fascinating. So I would encourage people to look at that, but seven books. So there's clearly loads that people can um, gain and learn from your capabilities. I have one last question because as much as I would love to continue to talk to you, we have to bring it to a close, which is I always ask every guest, like what is their daring to moment? Like what is it that you have dared to do are daring to do or is your dare to persona is there anything that you would share that you haven't already that really is your daring to well I think that my daring to was to set myself a genuine goal of wanting to help 20 million people across 20 countries achieve and celebrate more success with less stress you know we purposely picked an outrageously big number so that it was what you know some advisors call a big hairy audacious goal a BAG Um, because what it meant is, previous to that, I had a goal that I wanted to help 200,000 people. I've done that. I passed that goal. And therefore, instead of saying, well, what about 2 million? Because I think I could probably argue on some ripple effect I could get there. I thought, no, 20 million people, so that it's a really a massive goal. And what that means is I cannot do it on my own. You see, I did the 200,000 basically on my own. I can't do 20 million on my own, which is why we're, we're, you know, we're looking for strategic partners for Vic. We're looking for new members. We're looking for contributors to Vic. We're looking for champions of Vic. All have different meanings, all explained on our website, vicyourcoach.com. And any of your listeners are more than welcome to join in. But it is, set, I would suggest to other people, set yourself an outrageously big goal that you do not know how you can achieve. However, that if you were to achieve it, you would feel personally really proud and I still don't know how I'm going to get to 20 million it's a massive goal you will we're get on, there. We're on, you know the journey has started and that to me was I chose to dare to almost be arrogant enough to say can I really help 20 million and I can't but I and other people can and you know maybe one last phrase many of you will know it team together everyone achieves more that's great. So if people do want to know more about um, Vic, more about you, more about the company, how they can get involved, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Website, uh, Twitter account, LinkedIn, 
share some of those details with the audience? Websites, vicyourcoach.com. That's all about Vic. And at the moment, people can get completely free access to it. Trying to For us to help people with corona, completely free access to Vic if you want to go there. Um, also, my personal website is peterriding.com. Riding is with a Y, peterriding.com. And on the homepage, there's a whole load of information about various webinars that I'm giving globally at the moment. You can find out a bit more about me. And also there are tips for CEOs and the like. Or you can just email me, peter at peterriding.com. Um, and that will come through and I'll be delighted to respond, Rita. That's fabulous. So listeners, free free learning materials, free opportunities to grow and develop. Why not take it up? We're at home. We need some things to do. Grow your capabilities. Um, it's being offered. So check out the website. And if you haven't, go check out Peter's website. He has some great advice for CEOs. I've actually looked at, looked at it this morning and again and seen that there's a great sort of like very short video on coronavirus and how to deal with it and some tips around that. So please, if you are a leader today, don't forget to check it out. If you want to know more about um, DARE, then you can check us out on www.dareworldwide.com. You can find me on Twitter at Rita underscore Trahan. And do look out for our survey that is coming out, which is like, what have you learned during this coronavirus crisis? We are really keen to get your opinions around the world. So maybe together we can help you to reach your 20 million purposeful goal. Peter, thank you so much um, for being on the show. And I know that listeners are going to get a great amount of um, both personal growth and learning, but also things that they can share with others. Um, So thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. That's it for now. So can't see you next time. Thanks for listening. Enjoyed the conversation? Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes of Daring 2. Also, check out our website, dareworldwide.com, for some great resources around business in general, leadership, and how to bring about change. See you next time.